This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You must Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten stories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another episode of our ongoing series, Fake News, Fact-Checking Hollywood Babylon. This isn't news. This is totally unfounded gossip. It's a long way from Hollywood. Criticized for dealing too frankly with such themes as sex and nudity. Hollywood. Babylon. Last week, we began the story of Confidential Magazine the scandal sheet that transformed the way Hollywood was written about and approached its own scandals. Today, we're going to continue by talking about the trial that brought Confidential down and the actress, Maureen O'Hara, who took full credit for that takedown. Here is an excerpt from Hollywood Babylon. The trial finally started in Los Angeles, August 2nd, 1957. The press called it the trial of a hundred stars. Actually, after a brief appearance by Dorothy Dandridge, who withdrew her complaint after a considerable out-of-court settlement, the trial counted only one other star, beautiful redhead Maureen O'Hara. Confidential had informed its literati that Miss Maureen O'Hara had indulged in a Chinese chest game in the plush seats of the loge section of Grauman's Chinese Theater. Her playmate was said to have been an attractive South American. Judge Walker felt additional information was required. The scene was reenacted in the balcony. The manager of Grauman's agreed to play the part of the South American. A young woman reporter was stand-in for the star. The manager sat down, the double stretched out, and even raised her legs in the air. All 12 jurors repaired to row 35, where a minute examination of the three seats in question showed them no different from any others in the theater. Maureen did not appear until August 17th. 
She proved that at the time of the alleged frolics in the balcony of Grauman's, she had been in Spain. Her passport was entered as proof. She asked $5 million in damages. The witnesses persisted, in spite of her passport proof of absence, insisting that it had been the actress they had seen in the loge. Her sister, an Irish nun, emerged from a convent to come to her defense. The court brought in a lie detector, which did not prove that Maureen was telling the truth. The hung jury finally reached a compromise. The obscenity charges were dismissed. Confidential only had to cough up $5,000. There were many out-of-court settlements, however, which when added up, came to a lively sum. The magazine paid $40,000 to Liberace, and almost as much to a dozen other celebrities. The biggest actual drama of the case came with the suicide of Polly Gould, of the magazine's editorial staff. She killed herself the night of August 16th. She was to testify the following day. It was then discovered that Polly had been playing a double game, selling the secrets of the magazine to the DA and informing Harrison of the maneuvers of the police. Following the trial, Howard Rushmore, Harrison's editor-in-chief on Confidential, pulled out a gun while riding in a cab with his wife in New York's Upper East Side, shot Mrs. Rushmore, then killed himself. Harrison sold Confidential in 1957. Maureen O'Hara's account of her battle against Confidential, as related in her 2004 autobiography, has been widely mocked, as has much of her autobiography, which ranks among the memoirs of Elia Kazan and Roman Polanski for its lack of self-awareness. The crucial difference is that Kazan and Polanski's books are fascinating reads, and O'Hara's Tis Herself is not. In part, this is because the only hero in O'Hara's account is O'Hara, and literally everyone else is a villain. She's absolutely obsessed with the idea that she never became a great actress because she was too beautiful, which is not a great look. And much of her commentary about the most memorable films of her career, including Miracle on 34th Street and The Quiet Man, is either completely prosaic or is focused on, quote-unquote, setting the record straight on issues that I don't think matter at all. All of this is to say that her account of the confidential situation should be taken as, perhaps, not a pure, unvarnished, unemotional slice of truth. And it's because of this that anger's distortions of O'Hara's portion of the confidential story seem not that bad. Today, we will compare the different stories and try to sort out what really happened with Maureen O'Hara in that movie theater, to Confidential Magazine in the courtroom, and to Howard Rushmore in that taxi cab. Join us. 
won't you? For the story of Maureen O'Hara and Confidential Magazine. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. O'Hara had been discovered as a teenager in Dublin, and at age 14, she was signed to a personal contract by the actor Charles Lawton. She came to Hollywood with Lawton to make The Hunchback of Notre Dame in 1939, and then Lawton sold her contract to RKO. The gorgeous red-headed teenager felt she had been abandoned by her mentor, and stranded in a city and an industry for which she had little respect. She longed to travel back to the UK and pursue theater, which, she thought, was the only venue for real acting. Yes, she was one of those. Instead, O'Hara found herself working in Hollywood for an uninterrupted two decades— during which she appeared in five films directed by John Ford, including the Best Picture winner How Green Was My Valley and the Technicolor masterpiece The Quiet Man, in which O'Hara plays the quintessential feisty Irish lass opposite John Wayne. In her book, O'Hara categorizes Ford as a mentor who turned into a creep and a tyrant. She catalogs some strange and borderline sadistic behavior he directed towards her, ranging from harassing letters and on-set comments to O'Hara's suspicion that Ford schemed to ensure she wasn't nominated for an Oscar for The Quiet Man. O'Hara chalks this all up to her belief that Ford was a painfully closeted homosexual, who attempted to hide his true sexuality by projecting a facade of impossibly inflated, conventional hetero masculinity. O'Hara backs up this theory by claiming that she once walked in on Ford and another man and was creeped out. If John Ford was living a secret life, and if the masculinity of his movies and his persona did come from a place of shame, Well, that's fascinating, but the way O'Hara writes about it is icky, because she centers herself as a victim of Ford, who she paints as being virtually deranged, and she entangles her version of his sexuality with her disparaging view of his mental state. O'Hara's own true personal life for much of her stardom was hidden from the public. She had a secret first husband, left behind when she left Ireland for Hollywood. When that relationship was annulled, O'Hara entered into what the public believed was her first marriage. That husband, Will Price, was, according to O'Hara, a desperate alcoholic who spent her money wantonly, stole from her, 
and forced her to work more than she would have liked in order to make sure the bills he ran up got paid and to maintain the facade of her movie star lifestyle. Again, O'Hara paints herself as a helpless damsel, trapped in Hollywood due to forces beyond her control. One of those forces was her own Catholic faith, which made a divorce an option of absolute last resort. By the end of the 1940s, she had come to believe that in addition to being too beautiful to be taken seriously, there were two other problems in her career. One was that her movies made so much money that they helped to finance the prestige pictures starring less beautiful actresses, so the studios couldn't take the financial risk of taking her out of the dumb Technicolor blockbusters and putting her in, say, a Betty Davis-type picture. The other issue, in O'Hara's mind, was the casting couch. As she wrote in her autobiography, quote, I wasn't a whore. I've said over and over, you can have anything you want in life provided you are willing to make the necessary sacrifices for it. I was unwilling to make that kind of sacrifice to get a part in a movie. I'm not saying O'Hara should have submitted to the advances of movie producers to get the part she wanted, but today, it feels real shady for her to blame the other players, i.e. those actresses she deemed quote-unquote whores, rather than blaming the game. On the day of O'Hara's 10th anniversary of her wedding to Will Price, her husband finally moved out for good. This was shortly after O'Hara had begun a relationship with Enrique Parra, a Mexican politician who she first met at a film festival in Mexico City. At the beginning of the relationship, Enrique didn't speak English and Maureen didn't speak Spanish, and his teenage son would translate for the couple on their dates. Enrique was married but separated, and his wife had a boyfriend of her own. Satisfied that her new partner was essentially single, Maureen agreed to pay off her husband's debts if he would submit to a quiet divorce. He agreed, but then, according to Maureen, John Ford told Price that his soon-to-be ex-wife was living in sin with a Mexican. Will sued for custody of their daughter Bronwyn, alleging that her relationship with Para was immoral. And Maureen countersued, revealing that Price was a drunk who was frequently too intoxicated to care for a child. O'Hara also claimed in her book that after filing her suit, a, quote, very obvious homosexual, approached her at Schwab's drugstore, called her husband a, quote, cock-sucking bastard who shouldn't have custody of their child, and offered to testify to such in court. O'Hara took this to mean that her ex had been secretly gay and thus unfit for parenting. This is the last significant story O'Hara tells in her book before getting into the allegations made about her own sex life in Confidential. 
her repeated negative judgment of gay sex is gross. But it also serves to make it clear that she looked down on sex that she considered to be transgressive. In her book, she trumpets her prudery, perhaps a bit much, which might be a way of inoculating herself in advance against what is about to come. Here are excerpts from the story Confidential ran in their March 1957 issue, under the headline, It was a hot show in town when Maureen O'Hara cuddled in row 35. A gentlemanly assistant manager at Grauman's didn't give it a second thought one November evening not so long ago when he greeted lovely, green-eyed Maureen O'Hara at the head of the main aisle, escorted by a tall and handsome Latin American. She looked as dignified as a queen. The manager had his share of over-amorous couples in Grauman's, but such a problem never entered his mind as he watched red-haired Maureen sweep down the aisle in the darkness. O'Hara? Necking in a public theater? It just couldn't be. Easing down the aisle, he saw the entwined twosome. It was Maureen and her south-of-the-border sweetie. Maureen had entered wearing a silk blouse, neatly buttoned. Now, it wasn't. The guy had come in wearing a spruce blue suit. Now, he wasn't. Moreover, Maureen had taken the darndest position to watch a movie in the whole history of the theater. She was spread across three seats, with the happy Latin American in the middle seat. The manager was embarrassed at the prospect of having to walk over and tell them to break up the unadvertised love scene. On the other hand, what they were doing threatened to short-circuit the air conditioning system. Later, he found Maureen occupying one seat. Her boyfriend's. That is, they were both in it. She was sitting on his lap, facing the back of the theater. That was too much. The assistant manager turned his flashlight directly on Maureen and her Latin Lothario. Flicking off the light, he marched over to the romantic duo and suggested, perhaps it might be best if you left the theater. Of course, the story was an outrageous lie, O'Hara later wrote. It never happened. I had been seriously libeled in the most offensive way. The story does read as fiction concocted to counteract O'Hara's previously established persona and to make her relationship with a non-white foreigner seem all the more salacious. Again, we see that the subtext of so many of Confidential's hit pieces was racism. But, unfortunately, O'Hara's own account of what happened after the article ran also strains credulity. In her book, she claims that the entire industry was outraged by Confidential by the time her story ran and that all of her colleagues were in search of a figurehead to take the publication down. She claims she was told by actor-turned-politician 
George Murphy, we have picked you. I felt like I was Joan of Arc, responsible for saving the motion picture industry, O'Hara declared. And so I said yes. O'Hara did file a $5 million libel suit against Confidential, but she was not the pioneer she makes herself out to be. She was not the first star to file such a suit. As we noted last week, Elizabeth Scott and Robert Mitchum filed way back in 1955, two years before Dorothy Dandridge filed, and the closeted pianist Liberace followed Dandridge by filing suit in mid-1957. In fact, newspapers from 1957 indicate O'Hara filed her suit after she testified to the grand jury in August 1957. She switches the order of events in her autobiography. Now I am going to quote directly from O'Hara's book. Remember, the events she's about to describe would have to occur after O'Hara filed her suit, but before she testified. Then, all of a sudden, Liberace and Dandridge dropped their cases and settled with the magazine. Without any warning, George Murphy called me and said, Maureen, these lousy bastard sons of bitches, the industry is no longer supporting you on this. You're on your own. I'm sorry, and may God help you. He then hung up the phone. My own industry had thrown me to the wolves. This seems to be, if not a total fiction, then at least a distortion. For one thing, most of the industry never intended to support O'Hara by testifying. When the DA claimed at one point that he would subpoena hundreds of stars, the studio started pressuring the DA to drop the case because everyone knew that if stars were put on the stand to defend themselves against what Confidential got wrong, the stars would have to admit to embarrassing or scandalous details that Confidential had omitted or gotten right. Second, we know from last week's episode that despite her settlement with the magazine, Dandridge did testify. Finally, it was the judge in the case who declared that the scope of the subpoenas be limited to just six stories in question. The O'Hara and Dandridge articles were among the six, but the Liberace story was not, which was why he gave his deposition out of court in a private session with Confidential's attorneys. Contrary to O'Hara's claim that he abandoned the cause by settling, He didn't settle his case until a year after the trial, in July 1958. In any case, the industry had not thrown O'Hara to the wolves. Most of the industry wanted this whole thing to go away, but Dandridge and Liberace, the two stars she named as turncoats, were apparently just as committed to this fight as O'Hara was, if we take their actual on-the-record actions as evidence. There's another major issue that calls O'Hara's version in doubt. Confidential did not know if the Dorothy Dandridge story was true, but because its tipster swore it was, 
They felt they were safe in publishing it. They felt they were safe in publishing the Maureen O'Hara story because they absolutely believed it to be true. Unlike the Dandridge story, this one had been thoroughly vetted, and the fact-checker had found enough eyewitnesses who worked at the theater, whose stories were more or less consistent, and who had no reason to collude with one another. These witnesses testified at the trial, again, in contrast to the Dandridge story. Hollywood believed that even if the article wasn't true, the racial identity of O'Hara's boyfriend was worth gossiping about. O'Hara's relationship with Para had already been the subject of disapproving reports in mainstream local newspapers by the time Confidential ran their story. Maybe the tabloid had exaggerated the details, but most people around town believed that O'Hara was due to have her pristine image muddied, just like everyone else's. The details of Confidential's story about O'Hara were hazy enough that, when a single juror who was having trouble imagining the scene depicted in the magazine requested clarification, the whole jury was bussed over to Grauman's to see the scene of the alleged crime for themselves. I'm on the juror's side here. Confidential's description of O'Hara's, shall we say, posture is vague enough to allow the mind to reel. All kinds of sex acts could have been happening, or none at all. Contrary to Anger's report, the reenactment that followed did not involve the theater manager or a young female reporter with her legs in the air. Instead, the single juror who had requested the visit sat in the center seat and wriggled around, his arms outstretched towards a male bailiff, most likely as a comic gambit. Sidebar. Anger claims the biggest drama of the trial was the suicide of Polly Gould. This is not the whole story, and it's sort of weird that Anger leaves out the rest. Gould, who was a private investigator on Harrison's payroll, was found dead in her apartment in the middle of the trial. The Los Angeles Times reported that the cause of death was an apparently accidental pill overdose. This was extra shocking because Gould was the second witness to die before she was able to testify. The first was Chalky White, a black boxer turned chauffeur who had sold Confidential a story about his sexcapades with Mae West. After White died in his bathtub, his widow alleged that she had been besieged by threatening phone calls warning her not to talk about her husband's relationship with Mae West. And sidebar. When it came time for her to testify, O'Hara was accompanied to the court by her two brothers and her sister, who really was a nun. On the stand, O'Hara was a fierce witness, totally unshakable in her insistence that her passport which bore stamps from a trip to Europe to shoot a film, was all the proof necessary that she had not ever done anything inappropriate at Grauman's Chinese Theater. The problem was that Confidential hadn't specified a date when the incident had occurred. O'Hara's passport may have proved she hadn't been in Los Angeles the previous November, but on the stand, 
two assistant managers confirmed all of the details in the story, while acknowledging that they couldn't agree on the exact date it took place. Also, her claim on the stand that she had only been to Grauman's twice, both times for movie premieres, was disputed by a young lady who worked at the Grauman's candy counter. The candy counter girl was sure she had seen O'Hara at the theater, and it couldn't have been at a premiere because the candy counter was closed during premieres. In other words, both sides had their story and stuck to it. Anger claims O'Hara took a lie detector test, which, quote, did not prove she was telling the truth. But I can't find any other reporting that backs that up. Marjorie Mead, Robert Harrison's niece and head of Confidential's personal spy agency, Hollywood Research, did offer to take a lie detector test during the trial, but in regards to a story about the producer Paul Gregory. And Liberace offered to take one in his out-of-court testimony. But as far as I can tell, no lie detector tests were actually submitted into evidence at the trial. However, Confidential's lead defense attorney did make much of the fact that Maureen O'Hara was a trained actress. And thus, her testimony shouldn't be believed. After six weeks of total testimony, the jury was sent to the Ambassador Hotel to deliberate. After 17 days of sequestration, the longest deliberation in California history to that point, the jury announced they were deadlocked, unable to move beyond a vote of 7 to 5 in favor of guilty. Rather than go in for a second trial, the state of California proposed a settlement. They would drop the charges against Confidential if Robert Harrison paid $10,000 in fines, and if Confidential got out of the celebrity expose business. Harrison didn't have much choice. Confidential's network of sources had been destroyed by the trial, thanks to Rushmore having sold out all of its previous tipsters to the prosecution, which made any potential future tipsters too wary to tip. And the magazine, which had been banned in California during the trial, was now essentially gray-listed because newsstands were afraid of carrying it. In April 1958, Harrison announced that Confidential would no longer cover Hollywood. Three months later, he sold the magazine for a paltry $25,000. The magazine continued publishing under new management, running headlines like, Castro raped my teenage daughter. Howard Rushmore, the former confidential editor turned turncoat, found himself after the trial totally broke and with a history of selling out his co-workers and his professed values to the highest bidder, he was essentially unemployable. Anger makes what happened next seem like a direct consequence of the trial, but of course the trial had only come about because of Rushmore's missteps at Confidential, and his bloody end was the culmination of the many dark threads of his life resolving in the same ugly knot. He and his wife, Frances, were both alcoholics, and he beat her, and around Christmas 1957, she finally left him. On January 2nd, 
Howard came home and found Frances packing up what was left of her stuff. He followed her down to the curb, yelling. When she hailed a cab to leave, he pushed his way into the cab after her. The driver pulled away from the curb, and then the shots rung out. The driver turned his head and saw a blur of blood and guts. Howard Rushmore had shot his wife and then himself. In her book, Maureen O'Hara claims that she won the trial and that her victory, as she put it, was the first time a movie star had won against an industry tabloid. As I hope we've shown across these two episodes, she couldn't personally win the case in which she testified because it wasn't her trial to win. It was the state of California's. Her libel case was separate, and she settled it in July 1958 for an unpublished amount of money. Liberace's settlement was reported as $40,000, so it stands to reason O'Hara got about that much. But O'Hara's tale of victory survives, in part because so many people who have written about these events, Kenneth Anger included, conflated the stars' individual civil suits with the state of California's prosecution of Confidential. Next week, we will bring you the last episode of Fact-Checking Hollywood Babylon. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. This episode was edited by Cameron Drews. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes for every episode with information about our sources, music used, and much more. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter, at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And my book, Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes' Hollywood, is available now from Amazon or your local independent bookstore. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Love.